You are listening to a message brought to you by Christian Life Church Lempster. To find out more about us, go to www.clch.cc. But it's so nice though, um, to be a part of a church that has some life in it. Yeah? We're part of a church where people actually like hanging around with each other. Not every church like that. Um, so where's your joy? Today and over the next kind of couple of weeks, we're going to be going back through three of our kind of core values here kind of at CLC Lebster. So this, this is kind of CLC as a whole. This is kind of what we believe in this church here, the three kind of principles, values, characteristics that make this church what it is. And um, those core values are joyful obedience, supernatural overflow, generous outreach. Joyful obedience, supernatural overflow, generous outreach. Uh, I just wanted to give uh, a, a welcome to Tom and Courtney. Can we say hi, guys? So a lot of you are probably thinking, who are these guys? Um, Tom and Courtney used to go to CLC Lempster when we were over at the Grange. So that's like two iterations ago. That's like kind of four, five years ago now? Four years ago? So um, Courtney was, well, can I say Courtney? Was that was the first salvation we saw through CLC Lempster, um, which is a, yeah, just a huge milestone, but also getting to know Courtney and the change that Jesus has made in her life was just huge. Um, now married with Tom, um, got wonderful going Alice, part of a church in Reading, yes? Winchester. Winchester. Of course you did, of course you did. So, um, Courtney and Tom probably heard a lot of this already. Um, the first time we preached on this, we did it for about six months. So uh, it's just one, just one week today, guys, one week. Um, joyful obedience. And the tagline I've got for this is a pleasure, not a pressure. So joyful obedience is a pleasure, not a pressure. Obedience is often given a bit of a bad rep. Just the word already in many of you invokes negative reactions. Thoughts of some kind of political despots, uh, military regimes, schools, power-hungry politicians. So many of you are probably thinking, Jason, why in an age of caring so much about the words we use, are you still trying to go with this word obedience when people just smirk at it, laugh at it, cast it aside? And my response to you is, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for you. If it's good enough for Jesus, then it's good enough for you. Let's have a look at a few verses that relate to Jesus and his obedience. We're going to fly through these. So try, don't, don't worry about your Bible. They're going to come up on the screen. So, <laughs> oh dear. So, you ready for the first one? Is it there? Is it stop, stop showing? There we go. Ah, so the first one before this one is, John 4.34 says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John 5.19 says, The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the father doing. John 6.35 says, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Matthew 12.50 says, Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Mark 14 verse 36 says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but you will, says Jesus. 
So that's just the obedience of Jesus towards God, saying nothing about the obedience that we are meant to have towards Jesus or towards God. So if everything that Jesus did, if everything that Jesus ate, breathed, and moved, and had his whole being was directed from God, surely we should be following his lead. Yeah? Yeah. I'm going to start with a thought, a bit of a thought story. Uh, It might not be applicable to all of you, but uh, go with me, it'll be interesting. Imagine you're a seven-year-old boy, crazy into football. You live it, breathe it, it sweats out of every pore of your body. You've been dreaming for as long as you can remember to play in the Premier League for the team that your family has been supporting for generations. As you grow up, you make all the necessary sacrifices to pursue those childhood dreams. Late night training sessions so you can't go up to your friends' houses. A strict diet so you can remain fitter than the other team. A dedicated training regime. That means you have no time for other hobbies. Eventually, you find yourself being scouted by a lower league team, but you reject their offer as you know it'll pull you away from the team you actually want to be a part of. Until one day, at your training, you notice a scout from that dream team. At the end of the session, the scout comes over and he says to you directly, we want you on our team. Later on, he he rings you to finalise contracts and schedules and where to meet for your first practice. So you turn up at the training grounds, surrounded by the names and faces of people you've only previously seen in those, in those football sticker books. You receive the shirt with your name and number on it, and it dawns on you. I have made it. This is it. You walk into the, into the training ground, you walk over to join the squad for training, and the coach asks you to join in the drill that everyone else is already doing. And your response is, No thanks, I've got a better idea. How how crazy would that be? Yeah, how insane would that thought be for someone who has dedicated their life, devoted their life to a particular goal, and then in the end, the whole thing falls down due to a lack of humility. You wouldn't do it, would you? That makes no sense. But this is often what our Christian life looks like. A life of seeming devotion only to be undermined by a lack of humility and obedience. You might do all the things that Christians are or are not supposed to do. You don't get drunk, you don't swear, you're careful about what you watch on TV, you attend church, you give generously. But often you fail to offer over to God the very thing that he's really wanting which is your heart open to obedience to him. Here's a verse that struck me as quite profound. 1 Samuel 15, 22. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to take heed is better than the fat of rams. If you just kind of take out fat of rams and just insert kind of anything you might give to God that's really expensive and valuable, yeah? Now, there is little point in sacrifice if you're not going to follow it up with obedience. Or in other words, your actions count for nothing if your heart isn't already changed towards humility. 
all the things we might do and think and say as Christians that we think are good mean next to nothing if the motivation behind them is still, is still self-centered, selfish, or proud. Now, I'm not saying that any of these individual sacrifices are good or bad. What I'm saying is the motivation behind them changes the force within which they mean something. Yes? So that sacrifice is only valuable if your heart is in it towards God. If your sacrifice is an actual act of devotion towards God and giving your life over to him, then it's worthy. If your heart is simply, let's get the job done, tick that box, then it means nothing. And I can, I can lead you to another place in the Bible, Romans 14, I think would be a chapter that talks very much about that. Talks about, well, this person can eat meat offered to idols. This person can't eat meat offered to idols. What's the difference? And God's like, it's your heart that is the issue. What I want us to get at is that obedience to a God who loves us, cares for us, has the best outcomes and plans for us, knows us deeper than we will ever know ourselves, is the greatest source of comfort that you can possibly know. It gives you peace. It calms the storms of today. And it forms an anchor. It is a fountain of joy in our lives because obedience is joyful. Going back to the football analogy, when you, that person, makes it into that training session and the coach asks them to do something, what do you think should the reaction be from that kid, from that person? Yeah, absolutely. Not a problem. Or even before getting there, what do you reckon he's like to say to the coach? Yeah, what can I do? Thank you so much for having me on your team. Yeah? Thank you so much for picking me. Thank you for bringing me here. That's how you, that would be my response. If this means something that I've been dreaming of for years, and no, it only comes down to one person's decision, that coach, am I going to say, ah, oh, coach, I know I've spent 25 years trying to build up for this, so you know, you're lucky you've got me. Yeah, that's not going to be your response, is it? All right, well, if you knew the, the amount of time that I've spent waiting for this, I think you owe me, that contract needs a little bit more in it. You're not going to say that, are you? You're going to say, thank you for bringing me here, for picking me. But this should be our response to God. But often it isn't. And I'll give you some ideas why. Often our response is, oh man, it's so hard. It's my third hour fasting and I don't even think I can make it past lunchtime. I know I'm not spending enough time in God's presence. But you know, once I get home from work and I've had dinner, I'm really too tired to do anything. I used to be really involved in church. But to be honest, it did nothing for me. I prefer to do it in my own time, in my own way. Getting through an hour of prayer, I could barely make it five minutes before I'm thinking about what else I could be doing. I know that God's asked me to do this, but you know, I'm only five years from retirement. Can't he wait? There's a verse in Malachi chapter one. You got that one? Yeah, it goes. And the story behind this is exactly what we're talking about here in terms of 
the Israelite people, so God's chosen people, have been offering all these sacrifices to him, day in, day out, the whole temple's doing its thing, you know, it's got all the incense, it's got the burning, it's got the sacrifices happening, it's got the worship going on, but then God turns around to them and says, you profane it by saying the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. In other words, you're saying church is not enough, church is boring, Church is lifeless. The meeting didn't do it for me. The meeting could have been a bit shorter. The preaching could have been a bit, actually will be a lot better. Um, and you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it. Some of us, can you, we, we can do this for church. Oh, not that again. Not that person sharing another word again. Oh no. Not that person leading small group this week. Oh no. Not that person preaching, sorry guys. Not that person preaching again this week. Says the Lord Almighty, when you bring injured, next slide, lame or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands? When we bring anything less than our best, we are turning what God has made for a blessing into something contemptible or a curse. Curse is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it. Next one. But then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Our response to God should not be giving us the least that we can manage, but giving him the best that we can manage. It is a spirit of thankfulness to who God is and what he has done in your life, to who he is and what he's going to be doing in your life. So let me just um, circle back around and spell out this idea of obedience. So in order to be obedient to someone, this is, a, this is an open question, by the way. I've got three answers, but we'll see what happens. Um, in order to be obedient, what things do you need? What needs to happen? What does it need to be in place for you to be obedient to that person? Respect. Respect. Okay, good. You need to know what they want. Sorry? The ability. Humility, humility. You feel to submit to them. Trust. Trust. I can see you all thinking it's quite. Nice. So, here are three practical things that I think I'm going to see how this links into these. In order to be obedient to someone, first off, you need to be able to hear them. Yeah? You need to be able to know what they want. Because without that, how on earth are you going to be like, well, I'm going to do it? Secondly, you need to be able to understand what they say. Sounds obvious. But you can have some, if, um, if I came here and started shouting at you in Portuguese, um, you can hear me, but you've got no clue what's going on. I can try to do some sign language and some funny dances, but it's not going to help you being obedient to me. But then thirdly, in order to be obedient to someone, you need to have the capacity to follow through with what they've asked you to do. Can you imagine me going to Camilla and asking her, Camilla, Dad Nice is going out for a night out tonight. Can you be the taxi? I've looked after you long enough. So that's payback. Can she do that now? No, no. Why not? 
She's got a job. She can't reach her pedals. I was going to say neither can power, but um. So, would it be? Could I ask Camilla to be obedient to me in that situation? Would it be right of me to say to her, Camilla, I need you to take me to to and from Hereford now, and then be? Why are you not being obedient to me? Why are you not doing what I'm asking you to do? It's so clearly obvious. Get in the car and would that make sense? No. In order to be obedient, you need to have the capacity to follow through with what has been asked of you. So, let's turn this into God. The author of all existence, life and meaning. The very person that threw the stars into sky, planted the forests, who decides our coming and our going, and who commands all matter with his very words, who knows the beginning from the end, the Alpha and Omega, and who is mighty to save. He has asked you to be obedient. So what does this mean? Is he going to ask us to do something that is impossible for us to do? No, is the short answer. All scripture is God-breathed. Ah, loads more verses now. He's not going to ask you to do anything that you're not equipped and ready to do. 2 Timothy... Ah, we'll go with that one as well. Okay, we'll do that one. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Hebrews 13 says, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, he will equip you with everything good for doing his good will. And he, may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ. Next verse, Isaiah 45. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. 2 Peter 1 verses 3 and 4. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and godliness. Through these, he has given us um, very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. By God asking us to be obedient, it tells us straight off three things. That A, you can hear him. B, you can understand him, and C, you have everything you need to follow through with what it is that he's asked you to do. You can hear him, you can understand him, you can do what he says. What should our response be to that? Mm, yes. Really good. <laughs> I agree. What's God asked us to do? It's not a trick question. First some ideas out there. What has God asked you to do? Love. Follow me. Believe him. Trust him. Obey him. Forgive others. Make disciples. Love. Honour. Worship. Have clean hands and a pure heart. Fulfill the Great Commission. You will do greater things than these, Jesus says. I've called you into the world to be lights in the world, to be light, to be salt, to be different, to be holy. He has called you to heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons. 
He's told you to be generous to the poor. He's told you to look after the widows, to house the orphans. He's told you to, he's told that he's given you every good and perfect gift in order to fulfill all these things that he has asked you to do. You might be sat there right now thinking, there is no way I can tell that person at work about Jesus. There is no way I can continue praying for this illness in my life that has not gone away. There is no way I can bring this really small issue that's been bugging me for 30 years to God because it's so small. There is no way I can actually give beyond what I see, what I've been giving currently, because I just can't do it financially. There are so many things that in our lives we stop ourselves from walking into because we feel that we are not equipped to do it. We need evangelism training, discipleship training, leadership training, worship training. Pretty soon we're going to need some breathing training. All of us are looking for something that's going to help us do what already God has gifted you with, equipped you with, and anointed you with to fulfill what he has asked you to do. Would it be right of God to ask you to do something that you cannot do? No. The only thing that is missing is being forgiven for your sins. And the only person that can do that is Jesus. Once you've accepted him, once you said, yes, Jesus, I believe that you are Lord and Savior of my life, that moment, that moment that the flicker of that thought of belief comes into your heart and into your life, the moment, even before that seed, germ that seed of faith germinates in your heart and your soul, God is already imbuing you, filling you, anointing you with faith, with goodness, with holiness, with righteousness. That happens the moment the flicker of life is birthed in you. Don't think that the people around you who have been Christians for five decades have got any more anointing on you who's been Christian for five minutes. It is a black and white thing. Colossians tells us that we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's a transferal. Not a gradual process. What we see over time is the revelation of who God is. What changes over time is how great, how wonderful, how marvellous, how glorious, how majestic God is in my life. Let's have a look. <clears throat> no, we won't. Sorry. Before we get to that bit. You cannot be obedient to something that is dead. But we get to be obedient to God. You cannot be obedient to something that is dead, but we get to be obedient to God. Can you see that change? It's not a case of we have to do what God asks us to do. We get to. The right biblical response is a word called Joy. And this is why we've chosen joyful obedience as our key core, one of our key values. Because obedience isn't just a, a pressure, we have to do it, it's not just a duty. It is a pleasure to do what God has asked you to do. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will in you, in Christ Jesus. Next one. The precepts of the Lord are right 
giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Next one, John 15. As my Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, obey me, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Psalms says, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Romans 15 says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow. with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. What's, what's our response? To go ask us to do something? Joy. It's not a thoughtful process. It's not a, hold on a minute, God, I'm going to go, going to go wave, wave this up. It's yes. Yes, God. Thank you, God. What else can I do, God? Am I doing this right, God? You know, all the things that you kind of teach your kids when they want to go into a job that they should be doing. All the things that you teach your kid to be polite with. That's, that's actually our response to God instead of like, oh, that's really expensive. You can't really expect me to do that, God, can you? That's embarrassing. That's awkward. It's difficult. Obedience to God brings us joy. God has extended an invitation into his plans and purposes and we get to respond with yes. God has placed you in his team. He wants you to work with him. He has gifted you everything you possibly need to fulfill the job he has called you to. So now we get to join in with it. The end of Mark's gospel says, and God worked with them. It wasn't God did stuff and the disciples just kind of hang around. It wasn't that God kind of took a back seat and the disciples did everything. It says God worked with them in the fulfilling of that great commission. We get to play in God's design. We get to be involved in what he's doing. We have the privilege of seeing firsthand what God is doing in this world. How can obedience be seen to be demeaning if it's the way that God chooses to reveal himself to us? Here's, here's a phrase that we've used before, is that obedience takes us places that comfort never could. Obedience takes us places that comfort never could. And I'll explain why, what I mean by that. This morning, um, this is a very recent example. This morning, um, Camilla, Camilla loves doing maths. Um, I don't know where she gets that from, but um, she has a little maths book which she does like almost every day. And at the moment, she's, um, she's gone to like this kind of five plus book that's kind of meant for like year one, so she's super proud of herself. So the first page is going through the numbers one to a hundred, okay? She can do one to 20, absolutely fine. But there's like gaps in it that she had to like fill in the missing ones. And the first gap was like 23 or something. And she wrote 14. That's not right, is it? <laughs> It's not right. Levi, it's not right. <laughs> um, so I could have said, oh, if that's, what, if that's what you think, Camilla, that's fine. You can leave that there if you want to. Yeah, 14 can go in that box. Not a problem. Sure, okay. Well done. You go. You go, girl. 
Is that going to help her? No. If I say to her, Camilla, I love what you've done, but it's not 14, is it? Let's look at what's around it. Let's count up. What should be the next number? 21, 22, 23. Oh, you're so clever, Camilla. Look at that. Had I just let her do it, she would not have learned. Anytime you've learned something intentionally towards something, that has come from being obedient to a teacher, through being obedient to someone who's got a greater knowledge than you, who's leading you towards the right thing. Yes? If we were all left to our own devices from the age of zero, it would be a very messy place. I mean, I can't, I couldn't do my own, but I can't do my own washing now, let alone change my own diaper when I'm at the age of one. You know, we need people around us who help lead us into maturity, who help lead us into growth, who help lead us into to developing and taking on that next step in life. We could try this whole inquiry way of doing life. Who do you think God is? I don't know. Let's see if he's um, a really narcissistic God. See what happens. Let's see if actually God just wants a whole load of, um, wants me to go and spend my entire life on a mountain. Let's see if that does anything for God. No, we don't need to do that because God's already revealed himself through A, the Bible, but B, your sacrifice and obedience to him. If he's asking you to be generous, he's going to equip you, fulfill you, give you everything you need to do that, but it also tells you what about God? He's a generous God. If he's able to equip you to be generous, you can only do that because he is. If he's asking you to love other people, what does that tell you about God? It's love. If he's asking you to care for the people, it tells us what about God? He can't ask us to do things that are against his nature. Why? Because he's giving us his nature in order to do it. That's what the two Peter, second Peter verse said. We partake in the divine nature. When we do these things, we're working out who God is. This is why you just. This is why people say, "Well, why doesn't God just get off his high horse and come down here and sort, sort, sort us all out?" It's like, well, he could do, but he doesn't want to. He wants you to be involved. He's asked you to be involved. He's picked you for his team. You are the hands and feet of Jesus on this earth. God coming down and just telling everyone what to do would be against his nature. He wants you to join in with him, a partnership a community, a team. Some might even call it a church. But the miracles in your life that you have seen, who, would, who here, let's say a quick show of hands, would say that they've ever experienced or seen a miracle? Amazing. Yeah. Now, that miracle would be unlikely to have happened without a level of obedience. Prayer would have happened, a step of faith would have needed to have happened, but there's a moment there when God says to you, you need to. For me, there's one example of, I was told, I say told by God, it was very clear that God had asked me to go and pray for this one particular girl, lady, um, in a red top, red long coat, down a particular street in Manchester, just had to get prayed for her. Found her, prayed for her. Um, she did her back sorting out. And 10 second prayer. Next time I saw her two weeks later, it was healed. And her words were, I've had it for years. And suddenly you prayed for me, now it's stopped. 
I was like, oh, I can't see that. Would you, would you believe that? That wouldn't have happened if I had said, Axel, I can't do that. So here's what would have happened. If I said, no, God, I'm too embarrassed. If I said, no, God, I don't have the right words. If I said, no, God, I've done it too many times, it's not going to work this time. Would I, and would she, have found out how good and healing God's love is? No. So when I say obedience takes you to places that comfort never could, it's because comfort keeps you here. Comfort keeps you safe. Comfort keeps you wrapped up, tight. Comfort keeps you ignorant. Comfort makes you stuck. Comfort stops you from growing properly. If you want to see how good the Lord is, it comes on the other side of obedience. So I want to finish off with the question, Sir Jason, that's all well and good, but how do I know what I should be obedient in? How do I know that? You're telling me that God speaks, you're telling me that I can understand what he says. How do I know what that is for my life? How do I know what that is for me? So I've got four things here that are going to be fairly quick. The first thing that gives us an idea of what we're meant to be obedient to is, first, is clearly this thing. Okay, the Bible. This is God's concrete word, his concrete revelation, how he demonstrates who he is. You want to work out who God is? Read it. That tells you what he's done, tells you what he says, tells you what he thinks. But the Bible is the foundation of all our revelation of who God is, so we read it carefully. We ask the Holy Spirit to reveal conviction to us. We ask God to help the scriptures come alive to our soul. And if nothing else, the first time you come across an opportunity for obedience or God telling you something to do, ask yourself, am I doing this? What do I mean by that? Genesis 1. Spirit hovers over the uh, surface of the waters. You're reading it through, day, night, day, night. And then God says to God's creation, it is good. <coughs> Do you speak that over your life? It is good. Yeah, what, what, is that, what does chapter one of the Bible tell us? That God speaks out good things over things he has made. So there's an opportunity there. <coughs> do we do that? Do we speak out good over the things in our lives, over the world that we're a part of, over the creation that God has put in our lives? You don't need, the Bible doesn't need to say to you, God has said, do this. There's a lot there. But who is God? Read the Bible, not just to say the words, not just to memorize scripture. Read the Bible to the lens of who, what is this telling me about who God is? What is this telling me about who I am? Secondly, repetition. Have you heard, read, or seen the same message or point recently? 
Your ears might have perked up at the mention of something in particular. It caught your attention, so now you need to lean into it to discover more. An example of this idea of repetition being a way of hearing what God's saying to you is um, Paola myself um, fostered. That started because Paola, at her work, I think had like three separate things within like a, a week that all pointed toward fostering. There was an interview with a uh, lady who had been fostered. There was an article about someone who had set up a fostering charity. And there was another article about kind of the needs in the UK or America about fostering. So these three things caught her attention. She was like, Jason, I think, I think God's talking to us about fostering. So what did we do? We looked into it. What does it mean? What's the requirement? Is this something for us? Paolo got the vision for it. And I was like, if, if you think it's right, convince me. I'm not there with you yet, but get me on board. So repetition, if it, if it perks your ear, what is it? Look into it. When I hear many of you guys speaking about your faith life at the moment, I often hear you say, yeah, God's, God's been talking to me about that recently. God's been talking to me about how I'm meant to, um, how I'm meant to serve the poor and the needy in Memphis. God's been talking to me about how I need to be part, more part of the church that I, that I go to each week. God's actually been challenging me on the generosity that I have and how, about, how I use my finances. So if he's getting your attention, respond by at least exploring what that means. Next point of how to understand or how to discern what to be obedient in. Um, this one is um, the last known point. If you ever get lost on a map, or if you ever get lost, it's always good to go back to the last point that you knew where you were, right? Yeah? And it's often the same with our faith. Often, we might feel that we're lost, we might feel that we're guideless, directionless, because at the last point that we knew where we were, there was something that God had asked of us and required of us that we didn't follow through with. There was something, at some point, a few months ago, a few years ago, a few decades ago, that you heard from God in your, in your, in your heart, you were convicted by it, but instead of taking that path, you took a different path. Many of us in this room probably have stories just like that, where God has told you to do something, but you say, uh, I'm, I'm no. You need to go back to that point and work out where it went wrong. Now, I'm not saying that you've missed out on a whole lot of stuff because God is gracious and full of mercy. He is full of love to cover over our sins. But that doesn't stop us from understanding the nature of our heart. Yeah? I'm not saying that you can just carry on, it's all okay, God will just forget it and forgive. I'm saying if you want to be hearing from God and being obedient to what he's asked you to do, you need to go back and sort that out in your heart. There was one, I can give you a real example for me, which was, um, uh, growing up, of course, I was very much into punk, heavy metal, lots of music. Uh, it was like my dream to have a thousand CDs. I got to about 666, which is really quite funny. <laughs> That's still in our shed at the moment. Pally keeps saying, get rid of them, Jason. I'm like, no, they're going to be worth money one day. Um, so I was like, I'm just listening to too much music. There's just too much noise in my life, Jason. You need some silence. You need some solitude. And I felt that conviction there. And then one day, I was in a kind of a, a little meeting with some of the guys, similar age. And this one, one guy, 
literally picks up my earphones and just says, Jason, you need to unplug yourself. I mean, if you could think of a more kind of, you know, directive word, I said, oh, yeah, it's really nice. Thank you. Didn't do it. Didn't do it. It was, it was a clear word. You know, there was conviction there beforehand. Someone else repeated it, then kind of saying, Jason, you need to unplug yourself, and it didn't happen. And I feel in my heart, in my life, that I've missed out on God speaking to me at certain points because of that. There's grace for it, and there's love for it, and there's mercy for it. But that doesn't mean that I've, that kind of, God is going to suddenly inundate me with a whole lot of stuff now, I've got it all sorted. Yeah? If I want to understand the way that my heart works, I need to go back to that and understand how is that working in me today? What do I need to do to make that right? God still loves me. God still blesses me. God still has given me everything I need to do, everything I need to do. But if I want to hear him closely, if I want to have that discernment to follow him. And then lastly, is habitual sin. Sometimes the Spirit will pause in bringing new conviction until you have overcome the current conviction. God entrusts faithful people with more. It's a very biblical principle. So habitual sin is something that you're stuck in. It's a cycle, a perpetual cycle. You cannot seem to get out of it. It might be, um, for some people, negativity is that habitual sin. They cannot, they cannot get up from the thinking, you know, becoming an eel. That's all they think about. Woe is me. Everything is bad. You walk in, it's a, it's a surprise birthday party. Well, that's nice. I wasn't invited. Birthday party. They always see the negative side. Whatever's going on. Maybe that's you. Maybe you are that person that when something good is happening, you have to see the side of it that's less than great. Maybe your habitual sin is control. You cannot allow someone else to take control of something in your life. So you have to hold it close. You cannot let go. And you see yourself time and time and time and time and time and time again, trying to take control, trying to control other people. There are lots of habitual sins, but you know your heart. God knows your heart. If you're sat there thinking, you know, I don't know quite what that is, ask God to reveal it to you. It might not be today, it might not be now, it might be the next time it happens. The next time you're out in your car, someone cuts, cuts, um, cuts you off in front of you, suddenly you start, Ah! Holy Spirit, that's what I'm talking about. When you're at home talking with your husband, and whilst he's talking, you're in your head just thinking, oh my days, when's he going to shut up? That's the Holy Spirit. When you're about to get into bed and you've realised, I've not done any prayer today. I've not done any Bible time. I've not spent any time with you, God, but I'm really tired. That's the moment the Holy Spirit rocks up, brings that conviction. Don't just ignore it. Do something. 
Jesus tells us it is better when you're at the altar of worship to leave your sacrifice there and go and make amends than it is just to carry on doing what you should be doing, doing what you've always been doing. Yeah? If you want to become a church that hears between all of us the voice of God in our lives and is able to see the other side of obedience on a larger scale, we need to be able to ditch to one side the common structures and routines and rhythms in order to fulfill the call that we've been asked to do. Yeah? If we don't have the courage and the boldness to say, wait a minute, I need to go and ask this person for forgiveness. I need to go and make amends with this. I need to be able to backtrack and sort this out. If we can't do that, if we don't understand that your heart motivation, that your, your stance and your posture before God is more important than anything else, then it's going to be hard for us to grow and to be ready to receive from the revival that God has got planned for this place. Yeah? Your spiritual life matters. Your heart motivation matters. But the response in all of this is joyful obedience. Because although it's hard, although it's awkward, although it's tricky, you know full well on the other side of these choices, on the other side of this hard work, is rejoicing, is peace, is comfort, is healing. There's not a single person here who does not want to see those in their lives. But there are many of us that have been walking aimlessly for too long. So I'm going to finish in prayer. And if there's any of you who feel that, Jason, there's something that I need to really get prayer over, um, feel free to come to the front in a second. Um, Myself, Ken, Leslie, Levi, whatever you guys. But I'm just going to give you guys a couple of minutes just to respond to what you've heard. There's a lot there, and a lot there to do with our hearts. So I'd just like to take a moment, close your eyes, just um, dip your head, wherever it is, just focus on what it is that the Holy Spirit is bringing up in your heart right now. <laughs>